ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهديه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So today then we're on the hadith of Abu Qatadah radiyallahu anhu qal qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam fil hirrah innaha laysat binajs innaha min at-tawwafin alaykum wat-tawwafat rawahu Malik wa Ahmad in this hadith of Abu Qatadah, one of the companions, radiyallahu anhu, he says that the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said about cats, innaha laysat binajis, that they are not impure. Cats, are not impure. Innaha minat tawafin alaykum. Cats are from the types of animals that are in amongst you all the time. Cats are in amongst you all the time. In your garden, on your, your fence, in your car, on top, below, everywhere cats in amongst you all the time. Innaha minat tawafin alaykum. So they are not considered to be impure. They are considered to be pure. There is a story behind this hadith. There is a qissa. And that is that Abu Qatada, this particular companion, radiyallahu anhu, on one occasion he came home and he was going to make wudu. And the water he was going to use was in a bowl in his home somewhere, a bowl of water. He came and he was about to start making wudu from that bowl of water. But then his wife said to him, his wife when she noticed he's about to make wudu from that bowl of water, she said to him, but the cat, it was licking that water just a minute ago. The cat was licking from that water just a while ago. So then Abu Qatada radiyallahu anha said, radiyallahu anhu said to her, he said, Ata'ajabina? Are you surprised? You're surprised or are you amazed that I'm gonna make wudu from this water which a cat was licking just a while ago? Are you surprised? Have you not heard? Of the statement of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa The cats are not impure. They are from the tawafin wa tawafat. They are from the animals that are in amongst you all of the time. They are in amongst you everywhere. So they are not considered impure. So he explained to her. He explained to his wife. That the cat licking the water doesn't make the water impure. 
and I can still use it. Don't be surprised at that. The Prophet ﷺ told us the cats are pure. Normally you would think that the default ruling, if a cat comes and starts licking the water, you would assume that the default ruling is that the water now becomes impure. A cat comes with the saliva of the cat, everything starts licking that water, you would assume as a default that it becomes impure. However, as we see, it does not. And this is a principle in fiqh, the scholars mention sometimes, where they say, أَنَّ الْمَشَقَّةِ تَجْلِبُ Difficulty brings or allows ease into the situation. When there is an overburdening difficulty in a situation, then ease and facilitation can be brought into it. Now, if we were to say that cats are impure, if that was the ruling, that cats are impure, then maybe half of us sitting in this mosque right now would have to have washed our clothes and made a, a ghusl before we came today. Maybe half of us were in contact with a cat somewhere. Cats are everywhere. If the ruling was they are impure, at least once or twice or three times, how many times a week you would come into contact with a cat or a cat comes and touches your car, it touches this, it touches that. Are we going to start washing everything? Going to start making ghusl every time a cat goes past your garment? It would be a great burden. Particularly in those times, as it mentions, the cats are from the tawafin, that the cats, they are in amongst you everywhere. And that is something witnessed in the university in Medina. There used to be cats living amongst us. The residents were the students and cats. Students and cats. You share the halls of residence with the cats. That's not a joke. Cats used to be living in the halls of residence. So, they are everywhere. If the ruling was that it is impure, and you gotta go make a ghusl and wash your clothes every time a cat comes in contact with you, that would certainly be a great difficulty. So they have a principle in fiqh, al-mashaqqah tajlibu taysir where there is some overburdening difficulty, then ease and facilitation is allowed within it. And this is an example of it. How Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us this ease and facilitation with regards to the cats. That the ruling regarding them is, they are not considered impure. So even if they make contact with you here and there, lick the water, it does not become impure. If it did, there would certainly be a great burden upon the people. Here now, the Shaykh is going to explain some rulings regarding various animals. He says the fuqaha 
the scholars of fiqh, they have a statement regarding the issue of animals and what is pure and what is not. One thing they mention as a general rule, or before we mention the rule, let's ask you. Small, as you call them, creepy crawlies. Are they pure or impure? Pure? The small creepy crawlies, the small ants and the small, or smaller than ants, the small insects and things, are they considered pure or impure? Pure? Everybody saying they are pure? They are considered pure, but for a different reason. Not necessarily because they're everywhere. If they were everywhere, you'd have problems at home. There's a different reason for the insects. The scholars, they say, any animal that does not have an, what you may say, a blood flow. Of course, they have blood flow, but what it means is, if you were to squash one of these tiny insects, will there be a splatter of blood everywhere? No. If you were to cut one of these insects in half, will there be blood pouring out and gushing everywhere? No. These types of insects don't have that active blood flow like we do. They don't have that amount of blood like we do. Animals that don't have that capacity of blood, they don't have that type of volume of blood, you could cut it in half and there wouldn't be blood gushing everywhere, nothing. A tiny thing there, nothing really. Squash it, there isn't a huge puddle of blood, nothing. Those types of insects that don't have a huge volume of blood, they are all considered pure. Animals that do not have a huge volume of blood, then they are considered pure. So those types of insects and things, they are pure. A small insect, you accidentally squash one, and you do see a little tiny blob where it's squashed, and maybe you might see a tiny speck of blood where it was squashed. Maybe. But that wouldn't be impure. Doesn't mean you have to go wash your hand and get the soap and everything now. That is not considered impure. Because those animals do not have a volume of blood, a flow of blood. They don't have that flow of blood. That is one thing. Another rule generally the scholars mention. Animals that are smaller than cats, smaller than cats, generally are considered as, generally, are considered as pure. Animals smaller than cats, are generally considered as pure. Here now the sheikh is going to break down animals into five categories. So make note of these five categories. So that you understand what animals are pure, what animals are not pure. Five categories. Category number one. Animals that are impure when they are alive and when they are dead. Impure in all states. Animals that are impure in all states. Whether they are alive whether they are dead, 
all of their body parts, they are impure, alive or dead. That is category one. For example, pigs, that would come into this category. Dogs would come into this category. Swine, pigs, but something else as well, another category of animals that comes into this category, they are considered impure when alive or dead, in all circumstances. Animals with fangs. Animals with fangs. You call them fangs? Talons? So you mean the predatory animals, with the canines. Predatory animals, predatory animals are considered impure. Predatory animals with the canines or the fangs are considered impure. So predatory animals, predatory animals are impure. So they are all one category. Animals that are considered impure, alive or dead in all circumstances, impure. Pigs, dogs, predatory animals, a sibah. Category 2, animals that are considered pure when alive, but impure when dead. <coughs> pure, pure when they are alive, but impure when they are dead. That is category number 2, animals that are considered pure when alive, Impure when dead. مَا كَانَ طَاهِرًا فِي الْحَيَاةِ نَجِسًا بَعْدَ الْمَمَاتِ وَذَلِكَ كَالْهِرَّةِ Like the cat. A cat, as we've just seen in this hadith, is pure. However, after death, it would be considered Impure. How so? Why that reasoning? Is it allowed for you to slaughter a cat and eat a cat? Therefore, after you slaughter it, it is impure. You can't eat it. You can't slaughter a cat or animals smaller than a cat. They give examples like rats and mice. You wouldn't slaughter a rat or a mouse and eat it. These animals, when they are alive, are considered as pure. But when they die, it's not like you can slaughter them and eat them and they're halal. So when they are dead, they are considered as impure, as it would have really been the case when they're alive. But from the ease Allah gave us, the facilitation Allah gave us, they are considered pure. But after they die back to what it was, they are impure. That is category two. Rats, some of the scholars they say, will be considered as pure when alive. What about the cat and gazelle? You don't have anything to eat, so it's still not pure after that. If the cat? You are in the desert and you have nothing apart from cat. Oh no, this is allowed. If you're in the desert yeah. and you have nothing to eat yeah. and you're about to die, yeah. then you can eat it. That's allowed. That is allowed because now you have a choice. Either you die or you eat this haram. 
In this case, to preserve your life takes priority over that haram that you're going to have to do. It makes it allowed. And there is a rule in fiqh for that. Anybody know it? So, al-durura, that's it. So, the necessity, when you're in a time of absolute necessity, then in that situation, even the haram can be permissible. You're about to die, you're in the wood, you've been lost, you were camping and you got lost and you've been lost for two weeks, you're on the verge of death from starvation and you find a dead rabbit, meita. Halal or haram? Mayta, haram. Dead animal which was not slaughtered. Are you allowed to eat it? You're allowed because either you eat it and live or you say no it's haram and die. Preserving your life is given priority there. The durura, the absolute necessity is there which permits this haram which would typically be haram. That's allowed. But otherwise generally we're saying Category number three, الثالث. ما كان طاهرا في الحياة وبعد الممات Something which is pure when it is alive and after death. Something which is pure when it is alive and after death. However, it is impermissible to slaughter and eat. Animals that are pure when alive, pure after death, but impermissible to slaughter and eat. Like, we just mentioned it a while ago. Rabbits. Not rabbits, before that. Insects. Horse, you said horse? Horse, there's a difference of opinion. Some scholars, they say it's halal. Uh, horse, this is halal. Some scholars, they say it's, uh, you can eat it. You can do the uh, slaughtering of the horse and eat it. But here now the hasharat. Insects, like we just said, they don't have flowing blood. So the fuqaha, they say they are pure. Even after death, an insect is squashed, you touch it after it dies, still pure. Not considered to be impure upon you now. However, it's not something which you can slaughter and eat. Those types of insects. They are not slaughterable. So that is category three. Al-Rabi'ah. Ma kana tahiran fil hayat wa ba'da al-zakat. Something which is pure when it's alive. And it is pure if you slaughter it Islamically. Category three was, it's pure when it's alive. Pure after death, but you cannot. Slaughter it Islamically and eat it. Category 4, pure when it's alive. And pure after death, you can slaughter it Islamically and eat it. Like what? Chicken, chicken mashaAllah. <laughs> so chicken and all of those kinds of animals. Kalhayawanat al-mubah akluha. Kalbahima, kabahima al-an'am wa nahbiha. So all of these cows and sheep and camels and chicken, all of that is allowed. All of that is allowed and that can be slaughtered and eaten. Al-Khamis, ma kana tahiran fil hayat wa ba'd al-mamat, dhukkiya aw lam yudhakka wa huwa halal. Category number five, 
animals that are considered pure when alive, pure after death, even if you did not slaughter them, they are still pure after death. Fish. وَذَلِكَ كَحَيْوَانَاتِ الْبَحْرِ كُلِّهَا وَأَيْضًا Sayyid, but uh, what do you mean? Sayyid, if you don't slaughter it, it's meta. Sayyid like uh, a rabbit, arnab. If you catch it, but you don't do the slaughtering, meta. This one, it is halal even without the slaughtering. Bedun It is still halal. Fish and... No, no, no. Haram. If you shoot it with a gun or uh, you do arrow, like Arnab, like a rabbit, you do the arrow and it hits the rabbit. When you get to the rabbit, it is dead. Khalas, meita, haram. You can't eat it like this now. The Sayyid is not like that. The Sayyid, you, 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 like they have the, the, the dog, the hunting dog, Kalbu Sayyid. The hunting dog, it is a condition, shark. If the dog, you let it go and it does the hunting, the Sayyid. Catches the rabbit. The dog must make sure it does not kill the rabbit. If the dog catches the rabbit and kills it before you get there, meita, haramna. That's why they say the dog needs to be trained. Ibn Qayyim, remember we said, Ibn Qayyim he said the dog has to be the dog which is alim, not the jahil. The jahil dog will go start ripping it up into a thousand pieces. You get there, haram now. You can't take that and cook it. So, there's one more here. Something which is halal when alive and dead even without slaughtering. Fish and insects. We said before, you can't slaughter them and eat them. Jarat. Locusts. It's mentioned in the hadith, Uhillat lana daman. Two of the bloods have been made permissible. Wa maytatan. Which two? The fish and the jarat, the locusts. Locusts. You know the locust, like the grasshopper, but brown. Those locust things, they are permissible to eat, even without slaughtering. Even without slaughtering, they are allowed to be eaten. So they are pure, alive and dead, even without slaughtering. Because they are mentioned specifically as a ruling for them in the hadith. So what are the five categories? The first category, najis, hayyan wa mayyitan, fi thatihi wa ajza'ihi wa fadalatihi. Impure, alive and dead, in all of its parts. Like, predators. the predators, the siba', the dogs, and the pigs. They are all in this category. Number two, ma kana tahiran fil hayat, najisan ba'd al-mamat, something which is pure when alive, considered pure, but considered impure after death like cats. Like the cats. And animals that are smaller than cats. So mice, fa'ar, and these types of things would be considered uh, pure. When alive, would be considered pure according to some of the fuqaha. But after death, impure. Because you can't slaughter them and eat them. They are impure after death. Number three, ma kana tahiran. فِي الْحَيَاةِ وَبَعْدَ الْمَمَاتِ لَكِنَّهُ لَا يَحِلُّ أَكْلُهُ Something which is halal, uh, something which is pure, 
when alive and after death, but you're not allowed to slaughter it and eat it like insects. Ma la dam laha sa'il, as they say. It does not have any flowing blood in it. Number four, ma kana tahiran fil hayat wa ba'd al-thakat. Something which is pure when alive and after death if you've slaughtered it, like the sheep and the camels and the chicken, etc., the, uh, the uh, uh, cows, etc. Number five, ma kana tahiran fil hayat wa ba'd al-mamat, dhukkiya aw lam yudhakka wa huwa halal. Ka haywanat al-bahar, kulliha wal-jarat. All of the sea animals, the sea fish, and the locusts. So when you say that is that some some will say it's halal, but we can't. It's not allowed to eat. No, that's in the category of the ones number three category, uh, pure. Pure, but not something you can slaughter and eat. Like cats. Pure, but not something you can slaughter and eat. Animals that are smaller than cats, like rats, mice, these types of animals, anything smaller than a cat physically, generally the scholars give it the same ruling. They are pure, but they are not generally animals that you can slaughter and eat. Pure, but not animals you can slaughter and eat. Then... What about donkeys and mules? Al-Himar wal-Baghl. Is it pure or impure? Impure? Uh-huh, we're talking about the domestic one. Not the Wahshi. The domesticated donkey. Impure. When did? So these ones now. كَذَلِكَ طَهَارَةُ رِيقِ الْحِمَارِ وَالْبَغْلِ وَعِرْقِهِ وَشَعْرِهِ The saliva and the sweat. When you sit on top of a donkey on a hot day, the donkey sweats too. The saliva, the sweat, the, the hair on the donkey, these are all, and the mule, are all considered as pure. For the same kind of reasoning as this hadith, every day, obviously not here, but in other places, every day, donkeys are used. They sit on them, they ride on them, they put their things on them. If it was a ruling that donkeys are impure, every day you'd be making ghusl ten times a day. So again, they say the same type of ruling. Because of that extreme difficulty and burden that would occur, Allah has given this ease and facilitation that the saliva of the donkey, the, the sweat of the donkey, the hair of the donkey, all of those things and of the mule are not considered impure. وَيَدُلُّ عَلَيْهِ أَنَّهُ صَلَى وسلم كَانَ يَرْكَبُهَا هُوَ وَأَصْحَابُهُ وَلَمْ يَكُونُوا يَتَوَقَّوْنَ مِنْهَا مَا ذَكَرْنَا وَهَذَا هُوَ الصَّوَابِ And one of the evidences also is that the companions, they all used to, the Prophet ﷺ, the companions all used to ride on donkeys and be in contact with donkeys. But there's no ruling that they ever used to go and make ghusl from that. Or that the Prophet ﷺ told them this is impure now. So donkeys and mules, these things that are commonly used everywhere. For the same reasoning of removing that extreme difficulty, the ruling and the ease Allah has given us is that they are considered as pure.
Then we move on to the next hadith, al-hadith al-rabi' al-ashroon. Yeah, the camel meat, when you eat the camel meat, do you have to make wudu or not after it? Does it break your wudu? Is it from nawaqid al-wudu? Eating lahm al-ibl. Is it or not? Hmm. Huh? So it is a difference of opinion. There is a difference of opinion about camel meat. If you eat meat of a camel, does it break your wudu or not? Some scholars say yes, it breaks your wudu. There are some narrations about it. So some of them say it breaks your wudu, breaks it like you break wind or you go to sleep in a deep sleep, any of those types of things, the same as eating camel meat, breaks your wudu. You gotta go and make your wudu again. But there are some scholars who do not agree with that, and it's a difference of opinion regarding it. I believe Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbali takes the opinion that it breaks your wudu. So you need to make the wudu again. And some of the scholars, they give the, the, the illa behind that, the reasoning behind that. They say because the camels, their nature... Tabi'ah of the camel is rough and tough and a nature of being angry and harsh. That is the nature of camels. Emotional type of nature. So some of the scholars say maybe that's the reasoning. When you eat the meat of a camel, then maybe some of those characteristics come into you of the heated types of characteristics. So you make wudu after eating that to refresh your wudu and to be in a state of wudu. So it's a difference of opinion about the camel meat. Hmm. Regarding uh, hunting by dog, by dogs, hunting by dogs, uh, uh, there is a nahi in Surah Al-Maidah. فَكُلُوا مَمَّا أَمْسَكْنَا عَلَيْكُمْ وَذْكُرُوا اسْمَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ Sheikh Ibn Bazaar as well, he said it's halal by eating by Absolutely. Absolutely. There is a hadith which says dogs are haram to keep, except three types of dogs. Three types of dogs are allowed. What are the three types of dogs that are allowed? Hunting dog. Hunting dog. The sheep dog, the farm dog, the sheep dog, and... Uh-uh. Not the harasa, something else. Guide dog is a different issue. In the hadith it says three things. Hunting dog, sheep dog, how you call it these days. The farmers have it, rounds up the sheep and looks after the sheep. And they said agriculture dog. A farmer who doesn't have animals, but he has lots of potatoes and other things he grows. You can have a dog to guard over your fields. So the crows and the animals at night don't come and eat it. Those three are mentioned. The dog... To guard your house. Those types of guard dogs, are they allowed or not? No. Difference of opinion. Every time, huh? In fiqh, you just say fi qawlan, and that's it, you finish. <laughs> so with the guard dog, with the guard dog, there is a difference. But the majority of scholars, Al-Imam Ahmed, Al-Imam Shafi'i, Al-Imam Malik, all of them say the guard dog, is not allowed. Only Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, he has the opinion it is allowed. Why? 
Al-Imam Ahmed, Al-Imam Shafi'i, Al-Imam Malik, all of them said, at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, were there not bandits and robbers and all types of things, at night it would be pitch black, no electric lamps in the streets. Was there not a need at that time for some form of security around their homes and residences? Was there a need or not? Absolutely. Imagine living in a village somewhere, no lights, no electricity at night, pitch black in your homes, any robber, thief come in, do whatever they want. There's a need for some security. In the absence of alarms and lights and all these things, what are you going to do? Dog. So was the need there at the time of the Prophet ﷺ to have guard dogs or not? Absolutely the need was there. Despite the need being there, is it narrated that a single companion ever had a guard dog? They didn't use them. Hence, Al-Imam Ahmad, Al-Imam Malik, Al-Imam Shafi'i all concluded that if there was such a pressing need at that time for guard dogs, yet the Sahaba turned away from using dogs for guarding, then there must be a reason behind it and it must be because the hadith only mentions three types. God dog isn't one of them. The Sahaba stayed away from it. Therefore the ruling we have to say is, that it's not permissible. You gotta give us some explanation. Why? Al-Imam Abu Hanifa does the Qiyas. The Qiyas, he says, look, if the God dog is allowed for your agriculture and your fields, it's allowed for your farm and it's allowed for your sheep, then obviously it's allowed to protect you and your family and your house. They made this qiyas. But the others, they say, no, we don't accept this qiyas. They say, لا قياس مع وجود النص. The hadith says, how many types of dogs? Three. They say, خلاص, the nas is there. Three types. God dog for your house, it is not in the hadith. Neither do you have any examples of the sahaba ever doing it. So how can we say it's okay for you to do? So the majority of the scholars, they say no for God dogs. Minority will allow it. Any other questions up to there before we move on? What about the trade in this type of dogs? You have to trade, sell and buy this type of trade dogs. No, that's another issue. Now we're going too far. <laughs> Trading, then there are other ahadith about the, the, uh, the price and the money that is uh, obtained from buying and selling dogs and the, the impermissible nature of it. But that's another topic. You know, we have a, a, it's a, a, there's chapters in the books of fiqh that talk about just these topics. The chapter of hunting, the chapter of the animals and the dogs, all of it is there. But we're going to go too far if we discuss too far. Just on these topics. Is Nas the text? Is the text. Nas, the text or the hadith or the ayah. They say you cannot make any analogies or comparisons if there is a clear hadith highlighting the issue in the first place. The, the hair of these, um, not just animals, so the, the dog, the cat when it's dead, the hair of them, what's the ruling on, on those? The hair, it's not straightforward. Some of the scholars, they say a dog is impure in all of its parts, everywhere. It's hair, it's everything is impure. Others they say a dog is only impure in its saliva. So that there's a difference that exists regarding how much 
is the impurity. What level is the impurity? For certain animals, like a pig, there's rarely any difference. Every part of the pig is impure. But with dogs, there may be some difference regarding it. With cats, there may be some difference regarding it. But overall, generally speaking, after the cat has died, it is impure, impure to eat, impure to try and slaughter and eat. That is the base meaning of it being impure. As for impure, if you touch it, you become impure. That's another issue. It's not necessarily necessitated by this. It's not necessitated by it. But what is necessitated, meaning it's impure, after death you can't slaughter it, you can't eat it. That is the basic meaning of something being impure there. Difference of opinion. Some of the scholars say all of the dog is impure, so you got to go wash. Others they say not necessarily, it's only the saliva. But if you're going to remain safe upon the opinion, all of it is impure, then you go and wash. Seven times, we're digressing a lot now, but go on, seven times, what's the seven times regarding the dog issue? If a dog licks one of your vessels, one of your cups, then you got to wash it seven times, the first time you got to include some soil. That is the manner of washing a cup. And some of the scholars, they say, you cannot substitute the soil with fairy liquid or anything else. You got to use some soil. And a Sheikh Al-Fawzan mentions in his explanation of that hadith, that apparently there is some research scientifically that has been done. And whether it's proven or not doesn't make a difference to us. We have the hadith. But as a supplementary thing. That there is, there is some research that has been done where scientists have noticed that the bacteria in the saliva of a dog is actually neutralized by certain chemicals found in soil, in dirt, in soil. Apparently, scientifically, some research of that nature has occurred. As Sheikh Al-Fawzan mentions it. So it mentions in the hadith, in that instance of a dog licking your vessel, Seven times you have to wash it. The first time has to be with some soil. We'll have to move on. Next hadith, al-hadith al-rabi' al-ishroon, min mukaffirat al-dhunub. An Abi Hurayrat radhi Allahu anhu qal, qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as-salawatu al-khamsu wal-jum'atu ila al-jum'ah, wa ramadhanu ila ramadhan, mukaffiratun lima baynahunna majtunibat al-kabair. Rawahu Muslim. This hadith tells us about the expiation of minor sins. Your minor sins can be expiated. Takfir al-dhunub. They can be expiated by certain good actions. As-salawatul khams. The five prayers. One prayer to the next prayer is an expiation of the minor sins that occurred in between. That prayer to the next prayer is an expiation of the sins that occurred in between. The next prayer to the next one, expiation of the sins in between. Al-Jumu'ah ila al-Jumu'ah. 
One Jumu'ah prayer to the next Jumu'ah prayer, an expiation of the minor sins in between. Ramadan to Ramadan, an expiation of the minor sins in between. مُكَفِّرَاتٌ لِمَا بَيْنَهُنْ مَجْتُنِبَةِ الْكَبَائِرِ Those good deeds, they expiate the bad sins in between as long as you stay away from the major sins. مَجْتُنِبَةِ الْكَبَائِرِ Stay away from the major sins, the minor ones can be expiated. The question is, How do you know if a sin is minor or major? This dhamb, is it min al-sagha'ir or min al-kaba'ir? How do you know? Not all of them? Okay, there is that hadith that tells us about some of the major sins. Ishtanibu, uh, Stay away from the seven destructive sins. The mubiqat, those that will destroy you. But still, are there only seven? More. How do we know then which one is major, which one is minor? Uh-huh. So there are certain ways. Wa'id is one of them, meaning, if a particular sin is mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And it is said that the one who does this sin, then he will end up in the hellfire. For example, the one who does X, Y, and Z sin will end up in the hellfire, directly mentioning the hellfire with that sin. This indicates that sin must be a major sin. Or... Had, if it is mentioned, whoever does this sin, then there is a specific punishment which is X, Y, and Z. Like the one who steals, chopping the hand. The one who drinks alcohol, whipping him lashes. The one who fornicates, stoning depending if they are married, etc. or being exiled. Any sin which has a specific punishment linked to it, then that sin is a major sin. Major sin. Also, the anger of Allah. Whenever it says in the hadith or in the ayat, Allah's anger is upon the one who does this or that, then this is a major sin. The la'an, لَعَنَ اللَّهُ مَنْ فَعَلَ كَذَا وَكَذَا The curse of Allah upon the one who does X, Y, and Z, then that must be a major sin. Huh? Refusal to enter into paradise. What do you mean? Where they can't enter Jannah, they do some sort of sin. Possibly, that's the same as the fire. Putting the link of the fire to a sin means it's a major sin. But there is one other one. One other way to find out if something is a major sin. When the Prophet ﷺ says in the ahadith, لَيْسَ مِنَّا مَنْ فَعَلَ كَذَا وَكَذَا Not from us is the one who does X, Y, and Z. لَيْسَ مِنَّا 
man ghashana. Not from us is the one who deceives us. Deception, deceiving people, treachery of that nature is considered a major sin. لَيْسَ مِنَّا مَنْ ضَرَبَ الْخُدُودِ وَشَقَّ الْجُيُوبِ وَدَعَى بِدَعْوَ الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ Not from amongst us is the one who beats himself up and tears his clothes and screams and shouts, why me and why this and why that, when somebody dies. Those actions, if you do them, are major sins. All of these are considered major sins. That's how you work it out. And scholars have written books. They have written books. Al-Imam Al-Dhahabi. Al-Imam Al-Dhahabi has a book. Kitab Al-Kaba'ir. Al-Imam Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, Rahimahumullah. He has a book. Kitab Al-Kaba'ir. Where they list out a whole selection of sins that are major sins. How have they concluded these are major sins? By using those criteria. They've gone through the Qur'an and the Sunnah, everything which fits into those criteria we mentioned, they've stuck it out, plucked it out, put it into this book, collected a whole selection of major sins. Some of the scholars, they found 70 sins to be major sins. Other scholars found even more than that fit into the criteria. So the point being here, as long as you stay away from those major sins, the minor ones can be forgiven. How do the major ones get forgiven? You have to make tawbah. You have to seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the major sins. Minor ones could be forgiven by these other good deeds. At, uh, uh, where he mentions about the sayyi'ah, atbi'i sayyi'ah bil hasana, tamhuha. Follow up a bad deed with a good deed, it will wipe it out. Meaning the minor ones, the minor bad deeds, you do good deeds afterwards like these, and they will wipe them out. So that is what this hadith mentions. فَمِنْ نَعْمْ هَذَا الْحَدِيثِ يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ عَظِيمٍ فَضْلِ اللَّهِ وَكَرَمِهِ بِتَفْضِيلِهِ هَذِي الْعِبَادَاتِ الثَّلَاثِ الْعَظِيمَةِ وَأَنَّ لَهَا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ الْمَنْزِلَةِ الْعَالِيَةِ Which three? Here there are three acts of worship that Allah what the Prophet ﷺ has mentioned in this hadith, indicating how precious these acts of worship are. As-salawatul khams, the five daily prayers. Al-Jumu'ah, the Friday prayer, and Ramadan indicates to you how great they are. وَثَمَرَاتُهَا لَا تُعَدْ وَلَا تُحْصَى And the fruits of these worships cannot be counted. A person who guards over his five prayers in the Jum'ah and Ramadan, how much virtue and goodness you get out of that, it cannot be counted. فَمِنْ ثَمَرَاتِهَا أَنَّ اللَّهَ جَعَلَهَا مُكَمِّلَةً لِدِينِ الْعَبْدِ وَإِسْلَامِهِ وَأَنَّهَا نعم. So one of the benefits and the virtues of it, that Allah has said these actions, they perfect your religion. They complete your religion for you. They perfect your religion for you. The prayers, the Jum'ah, the Ramadan. So all of these things, they increase you in your Iman. They increase you in your Iman. And they keep you away from sins. فَهَذِهِ الْفَرَائِضِ الثَّلَاثِ 
إِذَا تَجَنَّبَ الْعَبْدُ كَبَائِرَ الذُّنُوبِ غَفَرَ اللَّهُ بِهَا الصَّغَائِرُ وَالْخَطِئَاتِ These great acts of worship, you do them sincerely, then Allah can forgive, will forgive, some of those other minor sins that you may have fallen into. In the Qur'an it says, إِنَّ الْحَسَنَاتِ يُذْهِبْنَ السَّيِّئَاتِ Indeed the good deeds, they make the bad deeds go away. The good deeds get rid of the bad deeds. إِنَّ الْحَسَنَاتِ يُذْهِبْنَ السَّيِّئَاتِ Similarly Allah mentioned, إِن تَجْتَنِبُوا كَبَائِرَ مَا تُنْهَوْنَ عَنْهُ نُكَفِّرْ عَنْكُمْ سَيِّئَاتِكُمْ as long as you stay away from those major sins, the minor ones we will expiate. So the minor sins can be expiated, but the major sins, you must seek repentance, seek forgiveness for the major sins to be forgiven. Then after that, Al-Hadith, Al-Khamis, Al-Ishroon, Sifatul Salah, An Malik ibn Al-Hawairith, رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم صلوا كما رأيتموني أصلي وإذا حضرت الصلاة فليؤذن لكم أحدكم وليأمكم أكبركم متفق عليه In this hadith of Malik ibn al-Hawarif Radiallahu anhu, he says that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Sallu kama ra'aytumuni usalli. Pray, pray as you have seen me pray. Pray as you have seen me pray. Pray in the manner that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa taught us. And of course, of course, everybody here knows exactly how to pray as the Prophet ﷺ prayed. How does everybody know? How do I know? Everybody knows absolutely. Because we spent about two years doing Kitabu Salah. We went through every single hadith about the chapter of praying. Kitab al-Salah, Mbulugh al-Maram. We did it. All of it. And we spoke about all of the different ahadith and all of the different, the arkan, the wajibat, the sunan of the prayer. We did it all. Two years or something we were doing it. All of that chapter, Kitab al-Salah. So that is something everybody should be aware of now. So, صَلُّوا كَمَا رَأَيْتُمُونِ أُصَلِّي And then, وَإِذَا حَضَرَتِ الصَّلَاةُ فَلْيُؤَذِّنْ لَكُمْ أَحَدُكُمْ And when the prayer time comes, then one of you make the أَذَان وَلْيَأُمَّكُمْ أَكْبَرُكُمْ And the highest of you should lead you in prayer. And that is something the scholars, they discuss all of these points are discussed. If we briefly mention them now, briefly mentioning the first one, pray as you have seen me pray. The prayer of the Prophet ﷺ is documented in detail. 
the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum mentioned to us details of everything they saw when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to pray. That as we said we have already studied. And you can go and look at the books. The book of Ashaykh al-Albani rahimahullah is available translated in English. The book of Ashaykh al-Athaymeen Sifatul Salah again translated and available. So you should get those books regarding the description of the prayer of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and make sure that you understand how to pray properly. The second point here is about the adhan. The adhan we discussed that before too. Who is the type of person who should make the adhan? Which person should make the adhan? Characteristics of the person who should make the adhan. Nice voice meaning somebody who has a strong voice. It is mentioned the mu'addin should be somebody who has a strong voice. Because the adhan is what? I'lam bidukhul al-waqt. It is to let people know that the time has entered. If the person doing the adhan has a small voice, who's going to hear the adhan? So it needs to be somebody with a good, strong voice who can read the words properly. What about tunes? Making melody in the adhan. It's not allowed. Even though everybody does it these days. Everywhere you go, people think this is good. Make the adhan beautiful. And they read the adhan like they are reading the Qur'an. And that is a mistake. The adhan is not to be read in a in a melodious tune. The adhan is supposed to be clear and loud. Not melodious. And I told you that story before. I told you that story before. One time one of the imams, one of the a'imma, from the history, from the past, he walked into a mosque, and the mu'addin was doing the adhan. And he was doing it singing. Allah. You know how they do it? Singing the adhan. Making the tunes and the melody. So after the mu'addin finished, this man called the mu'addin. And the mu'addin's name, whatever it was, I don't remember, Ahmed or something. So the man says to him, Ya Ahmad Ta'ala He says, oh, what's your problem? Say my name properly My name is Ahmad Not Ahmad Say Ahmad My name is Ahmad The man said to him MashaAllah You're getting angry? Every day you do adhan And you do this with the name of Allah Allahu Akbar Every day you do it with the name of Allah I do it with your name, you get angry? Then don't do it with the name of Allah in the adhan. That's what he said to him. Don't do it with the name of Allah in the adhan. Allahu Akbar, all these singing. That's not how you do the adhan. And that's why he did it on purpose. He said, Ya Ahmad, come here. He said, what are you talking about? Say my name properly. He said, that is properly. That's how you say the name of Allah in the adhan every day. So if you don't like it like that, do the adhan properly. 
So the adhan should be straight, clear. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Straight, clear and loud. Not Allah, all these tunes. That is not how the adhan is done. So that is regarding the adhan. Then also, وَلْيَا أُمَّكُمْ أَكْبَرُكُمْ Who has the right to lead the prayer? In some narrations it mentions about يَا أُمُّ الْقَوْمَ أَقْرَأُهُمْ لِكِتَابِ اللَّهِ فَإِنْ كَانُوا فِي الْقِرَاءَةِ سَوَاءِ فَأَعْلَمُهُمْ بِالسُنَّةِ فَإِنْ كَانُوا فِي السُنَّةِ سَوَاءِ فَأَقْدَمُهُمْ هِجْرَةً وَإِسْلَامًا فَإِذَا كَانُوا نعم متقاربين كما في هذا الحديث نعم then it mentions about if, it, if they are close فإن تقديم الأكبر مشروع when you're gonna decide who's gonna lead the prayer the priority is for the person who has the most knowledge of the Quran أقرأكم لكتاب الله the one who has the most knowledge of the Quran حافظ or he's memorized and knows about the Quran the second, imagine everybody, mashaAllah, hifaz. Then who's going to lead the prayer? The one who is most knowledgeable. A'lamuhum. But you know, imagine you have one person, he is hafiz of the Qur'an. Sab'a qira'at, everything, mashaAllah. Then another person, he only knows 20 juz. Only knows 20 juz, only knows one qira'ah. But alhamdulillah, he is alim of the sunnah. Which one is to lead the prayer? Huh? So the hafid, you're going to say to him, go, this one leading the prayer? I think one of the imams, Ishqan, he mentioned that, obviously, if the one that knows the sunnah more, he knows how to pray, so the hafid, you're saying, you're going to say to the hafid, sorry, the other one, he only knows 20 juz, but we're going to let him lead the prayer. That's what you're saying. One thing to remember, one very important thing to remember. In the hadith it says, أَقْرَأُهُمْ لِكِتَابِ اللَّهِ The one who has the most knowledge of the book of Allah, knows the memorization, everything. In those days, in the time of the salaf, the one who was أَقْرَأُهُمْ was also the one who was a'lamuhum. Because if you are hafiz of the Qur'an, then it is expected you know the tafsir of the Qur'an, and you know the ahkam of the Qur'an, you know the halal and the haram. That is what they used to be like. Today there's a big problem. Because today, maybe somebody is hafiz of the Qur'an, but he does not understand even a single ayah of the Qur'an. The hadith is not talking about that. Somebody who is hafiz, doesn't know anything what he memorized, doesn't understand anything, doesn't know nothing, he doesn't have the right to lead the prayer. Somebody else comes along who knows less Qur'an, but he knows, understands, he has the right to lead the prayer. In those days, the one who knew the most Qur'an was always going to be the one who was most knowledgeable. Practically, because they know the tafsir, the salaf they used to say, ما كنا نتجاوز عشر آيات من القرآن حتى نعلم معانيها ونعمل بها. Never used to go past ten ayahs until we knew exactly what they meant and acted upon them. Now, mashaAllah, the people they memorize ten ajza and they don't know what a single ayah means. This is the problem now. 
So you have to remember that. So in that case, it is the person who has understanding of the prayer as well, has understanding of the arkan, has understanding of the wajibat, knows about the rulings. That person who has knowledge has more priority than somebody who's half and then doesn't even know what he's memorized, hasn't got a clue about anything, no sunnah, no nothing. That is what we'll have to round off and we'll try and quickly do some questions before concluding. Um, let's have a look at these questions then. In the time of the Salaf, is the Hafiz knowledge of Qur'an or knowledge of Hadith? No. Hafiz, when they talk about Hadith, is a different issue. The one who's memorized a Hadith. These are just terms, terminology. Hafiz of the Qur'an, we're talking about Hafiz of the Qur'an. Hafiz amongst the Muhaddithun, they were talking about the one who has knowledge of Hadith. They are just terms used in different contexts. There's no issue with that. Should I pray when praying at home in jama'ah? Or is alone sufficient? For the men, they should be praying in jama'ah in the mosque anyway. Only if there is some reason you pray at home. Otherwise, the men have to come to the mosque and pray anyway. If it's the women, then yes, if you make jama'ah, that's good. The women can make the jama'ah at home. One of the women can lead the other women. It's allowed. So the women who pray at home, they should make a jama'ah, no problem. The men, they shouldn't be making jama'ah at home, they should be coming to the mosque in the first place. But if for some legitimate reason you couldn't make it, then yes, you can make the jama'ah, you should make that because it's more reward. What about if there's only wife and the man in the house, so the man can do the salah at the mosque? And after he comes from the mosque, he can do nawafil and the wife can join him. Allowed? Sahih? It's okay? That's okay. Imagine there is only husband and wife living at home. A couple living by themselves. The man has to come and pray in the mosque. He comes and prays in the mosque. When he goes home, his wife, she hasn't prayed yet. She can pray with him in jama'ah. He prays nafal. It's allowed. That even the sahaba they used to do. Mu'ad ibn Jabal used to come and pray with the Prophet ﷺ. The fard. Then he used to go. And lead the people. He used to be the imam for his people. So he was praying intention of nafila. And the people were praying fard. That's allowed. That's allowed. Do men have to... Do men have to something in a certain way when praying? Dress. Do men have to dress in a certain way when praying? If they don't dress in this way, is it a sin? Trousers, shirt, etc. We've discussed this before too. What is the ruling of a man when he prays? Minimum. Minimum is to cover Baina Surah wa Rukbah. From the navel to the knee. Minimum. You should also cover from the top if you can. The ruling of the Aura, it is Shart. Satr al Aura. Shart in the, in the prayer. The man has to wear something loose and thick. Meaning, the garment has to be thick enough so that the skin of your color cannot be seen through it. لا يصف البشر And secondly, it must be loose enough so that it does not identify your body shape. Trousers, typically speaking, and everybody will agree, identify your body shape. The minute you go into Rukua, Everybody can see exactly the shape of your posterior. Exactly. 
So trousers are very tight. And they are not recommended to pray in because they are not fully fulfilling the condition of awrah covering. Because the condition of covering the awrah isn't just to cover the skin and cover up the body part. It is to be loose so that the shape of the body part can't be seen either. So trousers cover it, but they don't cover the shape. You go into ruku', you go into sujood, all the shape can be seen. That's no good. They need to be loose trousers. If they are loose and baggy, okay. But if they are normal jeans and tight trousers, then it's not recommended to pray in them whatsoever. With regards to praying, are the sunnah a must to pray? The sunnah, of course, if you pray them, there is a great reward and it's mentioned about a house in paradise being built for you. If you didn't pray them, regularly, never ever, some of the scholars say that can be considered a sin. But it's not an obligation to pray all the time. Maybe some days you pray them, maybe some days you don't. That could just be your level of iman. But you should strive to pray them every day because of the virtues of those sunnah prayers. But if you miss them regularly, always, never pray them, that can be considered a sin. Witr is mentioned at the end. Witr, some of the scholars, Imam Ahmed said, the person who doesn't pray witr, do not accept his shahada. Don't take him as a trustworthy person, somebody who doesn't pray witr. So witr should be prayed. It is mu'akkad, something that should definitely be prayed. These are the questions about Umrah and about Iman. We'll do them next time. They are not directly linked to the class. We'll do those next time, inshallah ta'ala. How much is the Mu'addin? We need to, we'll have to stop. We'll have to stop today. Keep your questions in mind. Keep them in mind, inshallah ta'ala. Oh, inshallah ta'ala in a month's time now. Next one in a fortnight is going to be off. The fortnight after that, uh, fortnight after that, so it'll be in a month. So just write your questions down. Write them down so you don't forget, inshallah ta'ala, in a month's time, we'll come back and we'll carry on with them. We have to stop today.